If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The cover feature of the September issue of BBC History Magazine is written by Professor Tom Lysons, and it's all about King Edward the Confessor, based on Tom's new biography of the pre-conquest monarch. Our content director, David Musgrove, caught up with Professor Lysons to find out more about the life of King Edward. 
Today, I'm talking to Tom Lysons, who is Professor of Medieval History at the University of East Anglia. Uh, he's an expert in medieval history, and he's written a new book on Edward the Confessor, which is published by Yale University Press, and it's published in August 2020. Um, so uh, that's the topic we're going to talk about today. So Tom, thank you for joining us. How are you? Thank you, David. Yes, I'm well, thanks. Good to be with you. Good, good. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, so it's a great book. I've had a, a read of the of the PDF proof of it uh, and and enjoyed it. Um, uh, lots and lots to talk about. So we'll get straight into it. So Edward the Confessor, um, a, a reasonably famous uh, monarch in, uh, in in English history, I guess. Uh, uh, a lot of people would know him as 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 the uh, as the chap who comes before uh, Hastings and the and the Norman Conquest. Um, Lots has been written about him in the past, and your book uh, takes on uh, takes on the story uh, very well. And in the forward, you sort of say it all boils down to this about him: was he the weak king who doomed England by promising the crown to William and then Harold, or was he actually a, an unworldly innocent legend? So, uh, or maybe he was something else entirely. So maybe that's something we will get to within the course of the conversation. But we need to take it back to the start. Um, Let's go back to the start of his life. Uh, where is he born and, and what, what circumstances was he born into? Well, we have a charter reference saying that Edward was born at Islip, uh, a royal manor near Oxford, uh, sometime in the period 1002 to 1005. We can't be precise, but we know that he was definitely born after 1002 when his parents were married and before 1005 when he makes his first appearance, presumably as a baby, in a charter as a witness. And who were his parents? His father was King Ethelred, who's best known as Ethelred the Unready, uh, meaning that he wasn't advised particularly well. And his mother was Emma of Normandy. So she was the sister of the Duke of Normandy at the time. And they were married in 1002. Okay. And so uh, he was born right at the, the start of the 11th century. And the early years of the 11th century in England were, I think it's fair to say, probably a, a reasonably turbulent time. So perhaps you could just sketch out a little bit about what happens in, in that first sort of decade of his life. Yes, very much so. These, these were not good times to be alive. Uh, by about 1000, there were Viking attacks, large scale Viking attacks, pretty much every other year. There were also famines and droughts and other sort of catastrophic weather events. So all in all, it was a time when they believed that God was angry with the English people and was punishing them by various means at God's disposal. Um, and uh, so, so, yeah, so a difficult time to be born into, into the royal family. And his father struggled a bit uh, to, to maintain his, his rule in that period? Well, yes, I mean, Ethelred is known as the king who had to pay off the Vikings numerous times, who seems never to have won a battle against them, who eventually was overthrown in 1014 and had to surrender his kingdom to a Viking invader, Swain Forkbeard. And so he hasn't had a good reputation in, in, in history, and a number of historians have tried to rewrite his reputation and put it in a more positive light. One thing that's remarkable is that he managed to hang on to the throne for, for as long as he, he did, 38 years in total. So he must have had some some cunning and some ability to, to do that. But he was singularly unlucky uh, with these constant um, and escalating Viking attacks. So, uh, so as you mentioned, Swain Forkbeard takes the, takes the throne in 1014? 1014, that's correct. 10, 30, yes, 1013, 14. 10, 13, 14. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a, another sort of turbulent few years when uh, we have uh, uh, the, the, the crown changing hands a, a few times. Um, 
what happens to uh, to our man during that period to Edward? Well, during that period, Edward is of course growing up through boyhood to um, sort of the age of about eleven or twelve, potentially. When in ten sixteen, his father dies uh, of natural causes in London, when London was being besieged by the son of Swain Forkbeard, uh, Canute, who is known in Scandinavia as Canute the Great. Now, Canute managed to conquer England, um, and he held England uh, until ten thirty five, so almost twenty years. Uh, we have a Danish king, uh, and during that time, Knut was king of Denmark uh, as well, and Norway too. So Knut actually has this vast North Sea empire uh, with England as part of it. And in 1016, when Knut takes the throne, Edward, being the son of Ethelred, of course, is forced to flee. Uh, if he'd stayed around, Knut would have had him killed, most likely. So he and his younger brother, Alfred, and their sister, Godiyifu, flee to Normandy, where they're looked after by their uncle, Duke Richard. Okay, so before we get on to the Norman adventure, there's one person who we haven't mentioned here who perhaps we'll come back to, who is uh, Edmund Ironside. So where does he fit into this story? Yes, well, Edward was, I should say, the son of Ethelred's second marriage. And by his first marriage, Ethelred had had a number of sons already who were probably in their mid-twenties by the time he died in 1016. The eldest surviving son was Edmund Ironside. And so very briefly in 1016, after the death of Ethelred, Edmund Ironside is king. And he's on the throne as king between April 1016 and November 1016, when Knut is also in the land. And Edmund and Knut fight a number of inconclusive battles uh, during that period before Knut triumphs over Edmund Ironside at the Battle of Assendon in October 1016. And then for about a month, Knut and Edmund Ironside divide the kingdom between themselves. So we have a sort of co-rule between the Danish invader and the legitimate older son of King Ethelred at that time. So he's Edward's half-brother, his elder half-brother, who was more grown up at the time and had a better claim to taking the throne in 1016. Okay, so we may come back to Edmund and, and his offspring uh, towards the end of our story, but we'll we'll yes. park him f- for a moment and <laughs> okay. and, uh, and and follow uh, Edward to Normandy. So why why does he end up in Normandy? What's 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 the link there? Why would he be welcome across the Channel? Well, that's where his closest family are now. That all his family in England are dead. Ethelred's side of the family and his elder brothers are all pretty much out of the picture. As I mentioned, his mother, Emma, was uh, Norman herself. She was the sister of the Duke of Normandy. And so it was natural for the surviving members of the family, Emma and her children, to flee across the Channel uh, to Duke Richard, um, who who would then take care of them as their their uncle. So it was a safe space for, for him and his family? A safe space, yes. Uh, there was no question, really, that Knut could send his agents or assassins to do away with Edward in Normandy. Um, okay, um, and then one of the, the 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 sort of the, the the interesting things in your book, and there are many interesting things in your book, is is your analysis of what happens to Edward whilst he's in Normandy, uh, which are obviously formative years for this man. He was, uh, I guess, into his teens and then then into his twenties um, whilst he was there. Uh, in in the Norman court, and some historians have kind of skipped over that episode a bit and not given it too much interest. But you 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 think it was quite an important period for for Edward um, in his uh, in his in, in his development and in his aspirations to uh, to become king of England down the line. 
Yes, it's an important period, I think, in, in different ways. I mean, we're talking about the period between Edward being about 12 to him being a man well into his 30s. He's in, he's in Normandy for 24 years uh, in total from the end of 1016 to 1041. So this is a, a long section of his life. And it's a part of his life where he's also looking to new role models. He's looking to Duke Richard of Normandy as a potential role model for a, a ruler, for, for a leader. But it's also clear to me, looking at the contemporary charter evidence, that from day one, Edward is determined that he is going to return and recover his father's throne. And the most interesting evidence for that are the charters that he gives to various monasteries, promising them um, that he will grant them land in England, uh, actually granting them land in England, in effect, uh, on the assumption that he will one day be king and will be in a position to make good those grants. Um, one of the earliest charters is a, is, is, is a gift he makes to monks of the Monastery of St. Peter of Ghent in Flanders, where he promises them land on the south coast of England. And later on in the 1030s, he promises land to the monks of Mont Saint-Michel, a monastery uh, between Brittany and Normandy, again, land in England. And he's using these uh, these charters, obviously, to buy himself favour, to win support, to win, to win allies who can help him ultimately uh, regain the throne, either by providing funds or by networking on his behalf or by providing military support if they're in a position to do so. But these were surely quite hollow promises, not not really worth the, the vellum they were written on? Well, they may have been hollow promises. I mean, they were potentially hollow promises, of course, if he, if he, didn't, if he didn't make good his claim, if he didn't manage to return. But uh, there was everything to play for. If, if these very wealthy institutions were to, to sponsor him and provide, you know, provide money or equipment, and, and, and if he made a successful bid for power, then, then these were lucrative estates uh, to their great advantage. Okay, so you're painting a picture there of uh, quite an ambitious uh, young man, a man who, who maybe has a sense of destiny uh, that that he's got some, he's got you know something big in his future, which would slightly jar with some uh, some ways in which he's portrayed by other historians in the past. As uh, so, so perhaps we'll we will come back to that again um, a, a bit later. So, so he's there in Normandy. Presumably, he's is he becoming more continental in his in his demeanor and his and his approach to things is that is that even a concept at the time it's difficult to know really because we've got an international aristocracy who are all related by blood um, and we shouldn't think of the channel as a boundary between england and france we should think of it more like a motorway it was it was quicker to hop over to normandy by boat than it was to get on a horse and, and ride up to york for example um and these people are all related they often speak multiple languages um a lot of them will, will speak latin or also have have basic language in common but it's certainly true that edward's his spoken english will gradually be overlain by increasingly overlain by french uh, through these years and he would probably have picked up a strong french French accent, and he would have um, a- adopted certain customs and mannerisms um, which were which were more more clearly identifiable as, as, as French or Norman th- th- than English. Uh, so you could talk about him as being Normanized or, or Frankified, if, if you like. And was was it becoming a court in exile? Would there have been lots of other um, uh, Anglo-Saxon English people coming over and and uh, and orbiting around Edward and his family, or was it just them in a sort of cosseted existence at the uh, at the uh, at the Norman court? 
Well, I find that, that, that that's a really interesting question because we know very little about the people who looked after Edward in, in, in his, his exile. We don't even know for certain that Emma, his mother, went over to Normandy initially with him. He might have gone over in the care of somebody else. Um, it's very likely that there were other exiles. Uh, uh, we just don't hear anything about them. One thing we do know is that a bishop who accompanied Edward upon his return... Um, called Leofrich, had an English name, might have been possibly from Cornwall, might have been the son of another exile who went off with him. We've also got the parallel of 1066, when a lot of exiles from England fled to Denmark and to the Danish court. And we know that there are quite a few high-ranking exiles um, in the court of the King of Denmark after William's victory at the Battle of Hastings. So it's entirely possible that in 1016, when Canuck conquered England, uh, various other uh, nobles um, went into exile and simply vanished from the record because, well, why, why would they have been mentioned? Okay. So do we know what else he was doing uh, aside from granting these charters um, and, and living in the court? Do we have any examples of anything else was he doing? Presumably he was going out hunting and doing that sort of thing. But do we, do we have any any interesting anecdotes about what his daily life was like and uh, and where he was going and, and what his accent? A, a lot of this has to be speculation. Um, the one detail we have is that as soon as he fled abroad in 1016, he, he embarked upon a penitential pilgrimage, visiting various monasteries um, to seek the support of the saints. Uh, he might have interpreted the, the, the conquest of his father's kingdom as, as, a, as a punishment for, for his sins, and so he, he seems to go on this, this pilgrimage. Um, that will be over pretty quickly, and for, for the rest of his time growing up, he's presumably, and we, we can't be certain, but he's presumably doing the same things that all young lords did, that is, taking part in hunting, uh, feasting, uh, gathering a, a following um, around him, um, attending great events, uh, possibly taking part in the Duke's campaigns. The Dukes of Normandy fight various military campaigns, but also peacekeeping ca- peacekeeping campaigns. It's likely that Edward would have accompanied the Dukes uh, on some of those expeditions. He probably uh, attended um, and might have organised for the marriage of his, his younger sister, uh, Godifu, whom I mentioned. Um, there's a 24 period, a 24 year period in his life where we 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 simply have to speculate uh, for most of the time. Okay. Um, that's not very useful to a biographer, of course. <laughs> but um, so, at what point does it become uh, apparent, or become uh, an opportunity that he may become king of England? When when is it uh, something that is more of a reality that uh, that might come to pass? I think there are a couple of points. Early on in Canute's reign, ten sixteen, ten seventeen, Canute is still getting his his his. his his feet under the desk, as it were, and there are one or two hints that his his kingship of England isn't isn't accepted universally straight away. So there's still a question mark over whether Canute is going to be able to hold on to this this kingdom, and Ed, Edward might still be in with with a chance, although there's no practical way one can see of him getting hold of it. Late, later on, um, his his strongest chance comes when Canute is is nearing death. And, and, and in fact, when, when Canute does die, around about 1034, 1035, we know that the Duke of Normandy in 1034, who was Duke Robert, uh, Edward's cousin, launched um, a, a fleet uh, with the expressed intention of attacking England and, and reclaiming it for, uh, for Edward himself. Although whether this was partly bluster, uh, we, we can't be absolutely certain. But when Canute died in 1035, the following year, then the succession question is 
up in the air and there is now a possibility that Edward's line might be restored. So just going back to 1034, it's interesting to think, isn't it, that, that is there potentially a Norman conquest in, in 1034? Um, or was that, that's not really the same thing, is it? Because he would have been, if Robert had sent his fleet out, he would have been doing it in the name of Edward rather than William in 1066 doing it for himself. It seems to have been the fleet launched in the name of Edward, as you say. Um, the problem is that our, our Norman writer credits this to, to Robert's agency. We, we don't know the extent to which Edward himself might have been involved in raising some or, or all of this fleet um, or, or getting funds for it or, or, or whatever. Um, the Norman t- sources tend to, to, to praise the Norman dukes and credit them with, with you know, whatever can be counted as an achievement. So... It, it certainly it looks like an invasion attempt, whether we call it a Norman invasion or not. It is an invasion attempt. It might be better to see it as an attempt launched on behalf of an exiled claimant to get his throne back. And there are numerous such attempts throughout Anglo-Saxon history of exiled kings fighting to try to get their throne back. Now, in 1034, bad weather seems to blow this expedition off course. And very conveniently, the Duke of Normandy redirects it to Brittany, where he wants to go campaigning and assert his rights anyway. So the whole thing might have been a ruse, and and, and there is this question mark over exactly what its intentions were. But it is stated very clearly in the sources, and there's some good reason for thinking this, that it was an expedition designed to help Edward recover the throne. Um, And what what would have been in it for Duke Robert in that case? I mean, you can imagine the, you know, what it might be, but let's lay it out. Why would he want to get Edward onto the throne? Well, he didn't seem to have much liked Knut anyway. They they seem to have fallen out. But in, in, in tangible terms, if Edward's going around promising lands to monasteries, then he's presumably also made promises to Duke Robert that if Robert can help him recover the throne of England, Edward will make gifts of English land... Um, uh, to, to to Robert, so um, th- 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 there may be all sorts of rewards there for Robert uh, if he can if he can pull this off, or even if he can persuade Canute to yield a part of the English kingdom to Edward, because of course England had been divided between Canute and Ed- Edward's elder elder half brother Edmund as as recently as 1016. So even if Canute was willing to part with part of the realm and give it to to, to Edward, you know, Robert might benefit from that. Okay. Um, so the, the 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 fleet comes to Norse, it, it goes to Brittany instead. But Canute does die um, the following year. Um, but Edward doesn't uh, doesn't get on the throne. Then uh, it's a few years yet before he's uh, he's back uh, on the on the throne of England. So so what happens next? Well, it gets a bit complicated in 1035 because Canute leaves two sons by two different wives, uh, both of whom are considered to be candidates for the throne in. 1035 at Canute's death. And then there are also Edward and Edward's younger brother, Alfred, in play as candidates. So there are four potential candidates. Now, at first, the Witan, which is the assembly of councillors who have the decision of who should become king next, at first, it seems, from the records we have, that they're only interested in Canute's two sons, Arthur Canute and Harold. And for a while, England is divided between supporting either Hartha Canute or Harold, to the extent that the moneyers who strike the coins in the king's name are striking for both of those simultaneously. The moneyers in the north are striking for Harold, the moneyers in the south are striking for Hartha Canute. So we have this strange situation where it's not quite clear who is king or who is going to become king of all of England. Part of the problem is that Hartha Canute is stuck off in Denmark and so he can't come back to make good his claim. 
So that rumbles on into 1036, and it's in 1036 where we begin to get indications that there's a party that would prefer to have Edward, um, or possibly his younger brother Alfred, as king, a party that would prefer to have Ethelred's line restored to either of Knut's sons. And there are some hints at that point that Edward begins to be brought in as a, as a potential player. Um, and so, I mean, that does sort of uh, speak of the fact that um, that this country was... You know, it had a long pedigree here of of having uh, a Scandinavian element, the old Dane law, as as it, as it might have been called, and then the the, the more English anglicised Wessex area with the with the house from which um, Edward Edward was sprung. So, so I guess that would explain the the, the differing viewpoints there. Well, yes, you've got to remember that. Edward is from a, a bloodline that's very well established. It goes all the way back through Alfred the Great, right back to the semi-legendary founder of that dynasty, Kerdig. Uh, so his bloodline is the blood of kings, and it goes back centuries. The Danish kings are relatively recent interlopers. They appear in 1013 when the king of Denmark, as I mentioned, Swain Forkbeard, takes the throne. That then passes to his son, Knut. But their, their second generation, really, third generation at, at, at best, you know, the Danish rulers have only been uh, on the throne um, for, well, 20 years or slightly over 20 years at this point. So the the bloodline uh, of kings of Wessex is there within living memory. And, and I think you know, some people are beginning to want that want that back again. Uh, it's true that England had been settled, different parts of England had been settled by, by Scandinavian settlers. Uh, you mentioned the Dane law, this, this triangle sort of a land stretching from Essex up to Chester. A lot of that is very heavily settled by, by um, particularly Danish settlers um, in earlier centuries. But I think a lot of those had pretty well assimilated with the native population by the time we get to the, the 1030s. Um, and so the Danish regime would would have felt like a, a fairly recent import. Okay, um, and you do stress in your book this importance of the bloodline. You think that is a significant aspect in the uh, in the in the um, in the line of kings here, and and, and the fact that uh, Edward was able to lay claim to to this to this royal pedigree um, gave him a significant advantage and it sort of plays into the, the story at the end of his reign as well. But you think that's, that is a a very significant aspect in, uh, in how he gets I I think it's, it's significance has been overlooked. Um, sometimes historians don't see the wood for the trees. It's almost such an obvious thing that we, we don't think about it very much at all, but we are told in, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, for example, in 1014, when Ethelred is able to make a comeback and is restored to his throne, that they want their natural king back. Uh, the fact that Edward the Confessor himself is able to recover the throne and, and be crowned after 24 years in exile uh, is testimony to the power of his his blood claim. And without without jumping the gun, um, because we may want to talk about this later, we, we see that blood claim again re- powerfully rearing its head later in the reign, when the descendants of Edmund Ironside are, are recalled after an even longer period in exile. I mean, I, I think we've got to a stage in the 11th century where, with the exception of Danish invaders and usurpers um, and their children, uh, it's it's almost become unthinkable for someone who isn't of the male bloodline of the House of Wessex um, to, to, to be sat on the throne. OK. Uh, and yet... Canute's sons do sit on the throne. Um, yes. So how does how does Edward dislodge them? Well, it's interesting that you say dislodge. Um, 
I, I certainly think that he was uh, wanting to dislodge them. Um, but the traditional story that, that has been told and the story that was told at the time by, by a court propagandist is that by 1042, Hartha Knut, who was Knut's son and who was on the throne at that stage, decided that he needed a bit of help um, in the running of the kingdom and had invited Edward over to, to assist uh, and, and run it with him, not, not quite as co-king, Although the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that he was sworn in as king, but as a sort of um, as a sort of co co regent, if you like, uh, and and this contemporary writer at court paints a picture of happy familial harmony uh, between Emma and her two sons, um, Edward, of course, the older son by Ethelred, and Harthacnut, um, her son by Canute. And one thing we should have mentioned, um, or I should have mentioned, is that Edward's mother had married Canute. So these 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 this is Edward's half brother. This is this is where all the family stuff gets very tangled. Um, in 1017, Emma had married Canute, so she is the wife, the queen, to two kings in succession, and Edward is having to dislodge his own half brother. So this is quite a bizarre story there, and we'll come we'll come on to Emma again in in a second if, if you don't mind. It is a, a quite a bizarre story that half a Canute. He was you know he was described as as quite unpopular, wasn't he, amongst uh, amongst the people of England. It's 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 strange to think that he would invite someone else to come and help him out like that. It doesn't it doesn't quite scan very well, does it? To me, maybe it does to you. Maybe I'm being overly cynical. Oh, it doesn't. It does. It doesn't to me. I mean, my 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 understanding of the eleventh century is that people generally didn't want to share power. Um, the story that's later told by William of Poitiers, who's a Norman writer writing in the 1070s, trying to make sense of these events, is that Harthacnut was a sickly man who didn't have very long left to live. And for that reason, he invited his half-brother Edward over. But that story doesn't square very well with the evidence we have, which is, first of all, that Harthacnut was a young man, and secondly, that Harthacnut died very suddenly while he was drinking at a banquet. Um, it doesn't seem to be the death of someone who was ailing in bed. So there, there is, a, there is a, a problem here, I think, which needs to be addressed, that the traditional idea of Harthacnut simply inviting Edward over to share power because he felt like it um, isn't very convincing. So do you suspect foul play in the demise of Harthacnut? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't want to draw too many comparisons with Game of Thrones because I think I lose the argument if I do that. Um, but, of course, the death, of, <laughs> the death of Joffrey in Game of Thrones, where he drops dead by drinking from a, 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 a goblet at a banquet, um, is possibly modelled on the death of Harthacnut in 1042. The key point is that no one at the time suspected foul play. No one, uh, no no chronicler, no writer suggested that Harthacnut had been murdered, but it was awfully convenient that a year after Edward the Confessor was invited over, um, the obstacle should be removed in such a in such a sudden way. Okay, so we finally get to the point when Edward is on the throne. Um, Harthacnut's out the way. His his brother, uh, half brother Harold, is out out the way as well. Um, what about Alfred? We mentioned Alfred, his 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 other brother. Um, is he still a is he still a concern? No, he's not. Um, in 1036, as I mentioned, uh, Edward and Alfred both came into play as potential uh, claimants to the throne to resolve this issue of who should take it after Canute's death. They had both mounted independent um, invasions. They'd both uh, led fleets to attack England. Uh, Edward had fought a battle. Um, he'd had some success with that, but seems to not have favoured his chances and had returned to Normandy. Alfred, on the other hand, had been captured 
and he had been led to a monastery at Ely and blinded uh, as a punishment, which was an attempt to put him out of the running. Now, as a result of that blinding, uh, he died of his injuries. So Alfred was dead um, in early 1037, uh, and he's no longer in the picture. But Edward's sister, um, Godifu, is still alive. And the person responsible for that blinding uh, may well come back into the into the story. <laughs> if in, indeed in, we know who is responsible. But yes. Well, indeed, well, indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so so he's finally on the throne, and uh, so it's uh, he's crowned in in ten forty two in the end, isn't he? Eventually, ten forty three. He waits a whole. He gets, yeah. he gets the throne in ten forty two, but he's crowned in ten forty three. Okay, uh, that's when the coronation takes place. So so uh, at that point, then, can I assume that he's inheriting a happy, united place where everybody uh, wants him to be king? Well, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that that was a year of terrible floods and famines, so there's a hint, perhaps, that it, it isn't such a happy, united place. But Edward makes a point of, of, of stressing this message of peace, and he does something very original. He, uh, he issues a coin. Um, kings obviously issue coinage, and they have special designs on them, which are, are messages to their people. And the very first issue he issues has the word peace emblazoned, or embossed, I should say, on the coin. It's the, it's the first Anglo-Saxon coin of this type ever to have peace stamped on it. And it looks like a, a, a manifesto. Edward's desire is to bring together uh, warring factions. Um, because, of course, we've had uh, both Harold and Hartha Knut, I should say Knut's son Harold's, not Harold of Battle of Hastings, they've both reigned in quick succession before Edward. And there are two different factions there who've been fighting each other. Edward wants to bring peace. He wants to restore the old dynasty. Um, he wants to unite uh, the English and the Danish as best he can, although that isn't always successful. Okay, so he's so he's he's starting talking about peace, and I guess that's is that where we start to get these ideas that he was a, a man of peace and a man of godliness. Is that where the initial bit of that character starts to appear, or is that a much later development? No, I think you're right that that that's a myth Edward's been working on even in his exile, and I, I suspect that Edward uh, in those in those. Um, dark years about which we know rather little is is working on the myth of himself um part of that myth is that he's a godly man part of that myth is that uh, he is god's chosen uh that that reclaiming the english throne is his destiny um the pilgrimage he goes on as early as 1016 is 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 myth creation it's presenting himself as a a holy man visiting the, the, the shrines of saints and i think the message of peace is a very deliberate one as is the desire as is the fact that he gets crowned on easter day he he waits almost a year to be crowned on Easter Day, um, symbolic, of course, of Christ's resurrection. And you can map that onto the resurrection of his dynasty, the idea of him coming back from the dead. Um, exile in Anglo-Saxon poetry is often likened to death. So Edward is coming back from the death of exile. His dynasty is being resurrected. He is perhaps freeing the English from their captivity under the yoke of Danish, uh, you know, Danish command. All of these themes are beginning to emerge and play out in the writing at the time. That's not an obvious policy approach, though, is it? To to go for peace in a time when I, I think it's, you know, it wouldn't be unfair to describe the 11th century as a, as a time of violence uh, and warfare. To say that you're a man of peace would that have gone down well with the with the constituents? Would they have would they have thought, yeah, that's what we need? We need a a man of peace rather than a man of war and action. Well, when we look at contemporary theorists of kingship, um, theorists writing in the 10th, 11th centuries 
what they what they present as the model king is the king who brings peace. So nobody wants more war. It's not pleasant to have kings who fight battles. And kings who go and fight battles like Edmund Ironside, um, or indeed Harold Goblinson in 1066, they tend not to last very long, and they, they tend to bring a lot of misery on a lot of people as a result of the bloodshed and death. Um, everyone wants peace and quiet, particularly after this turnaround of, of regime. And the other thing to think about, of course, is the potential influence of Duke Richard of Normandy. Now, Richard of Normandy, Edward's uncle, who was looking after him through much of that time in exile, he was renowned and remembered as a man of peace, uh, a duke who brought peace between the different um, principalities, who always preferred peace to war. He was renowned also as a godly man. And that ideal of a ruler bringing peace might have been an ideal that Edward had learned from his uncle's example, because of course his father dies when he's 11 or 12, he needs a new paternal role model. It's quite possible that he's looking to his uncle for that for that role model, for how a, a leader should be. So it may be that he's, he's absorbed this idea that he should be bringing peace as a ruler. Okay, so it's a, maybe a good play then. Um, I, I said we'd come back to, to Queen Emma, um, uh, and there's, there's a couple of uh, important women in the story. His mother, uh, Emma, as, as you talked about, and and also his wife, uh, Queen Edith, who, who perhaps we will get onto. So, so what happens to Emma at, at this stage? Um, is she uh, is she welcomed back into into the bosom of the royal family? Not exactly. Um, Emma's got rather too fond of pulling the strings of power. You know, we, we talk about the reigns of Harold and Hartha Canute's sons between 1035 and 1042. Really, once Hartha Canute comes along, it's Emma who's pulling the strings. Hartha Canute is, is a teenager or barely more than that. She, she's very used to power. She's used to controlling the treasury at Winchester. Um, and she hasn't done very much to help Edward in all those years in exile, you know, not, not least by marrying the man who had deposed his father. Um, it seems, moreover, that Emma got on a lot better with Canute than she did with Ethelred. Uh, she decided to have Ethelred completely written out of the history that she had written about the dynasty, but she celebrated Canute in that history. So it's it's clear to me, at least, that she preferred her second marriage. And that might not have gone down with, very well with Edward. So one of the first things Edward does with becoming king is he punishes his mother. He confiscates a lot of her assets and he tells her to go off and live quietly in her house in Winchester. Um, whether he does this simply because she's sitting on resources and refusing to, to, to release them to him or, or because he, he genuinely feels this sort of anger and, and bitterness at her, her, her lack of support for him over all those years isn't entirely clear. But um, after he punishes her by taking away some of her wealth, she then just gets to live out her days, in effect, as, as, as a widow in retirement. So there, there are no further attacks upon her. Okay, so she has a very interesting life, and, and as you say, uh, moves in, in 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 various royal circles. What about uh, what about his wife, uh, Queen Edith? Um, when does he marry her, and what are the circumstances of that? So it's quite usual at this date for for nobles not to get married, to postpone marriage until um, they're of an age when they come into their inheritance. And there's no indication that Edward had ever had any uh, relations with anybody prior to this marriage in 1045. So in January 1045, when he himself is in his early 40s, he marries Edith. Edith is daughter of Earl Godwin of Wessex, who is the most powerful earl in England, and had held his position as the most powerful earl in England since Canute's time, since the early 1020s. So Godwin is a real power broker. Um, Edith, his daughter, was probably in her teens, 
or at most in her early 20s when Edward married her. So there would have been something of a father-daughter relationship, at least uh, to onlookers. And that was picked up on at the end of the reign by Edward's biographer, who who commented that it was a little bit like a father-daughter relationship. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The bloodline is fundamental to his own claim to this throne. It's fundamental to him coming back after 24 years uh, to, to, to reclaim it. And so it doesn't sit very well with his own his own theory of kingship, if you like, that he should go offering it to people who, who aren't of that, of that noble status. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, there's there's one slightly tricksy bit with this element of the story, um, uh, which takes us back to the to the blinding uh, episode that we uh, referenced earlier with Edward's brother. And th- there was the story that the blinding uh, was, that the person culpable of that was, was Earl Godwin. Um, now that would clearly be a difficult thing for Edward to come to terms with and and, uh, and marry his daughter if um, if he if he if he felt that was uh, that was the truth and was uh, and was and was bothered about it. So what's your take on on that story? Well, this story is really important. As you say, it's central to the relationship between Edward and, and Godwin. Um, Godwin was involved in Alfred's capture. There's no question about that. And he may have been involved in handing Alfred and his men over to, 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 to King Harold as he was then for punishment. So Godwin has, Godwin has done a nasty thing to, to Alfred and is probably culpable for his death. That, that's, that's not in question. 
Now it's been assumed for for a long time, and perhaps for some from good some good reasons, that Edward would have been unhappy about uh, this, and that uh, Edward would have disapproved of Godwin's role in his his brother's death. But we really know very little about the relationship between Edward and Alfred, um, and we know very little about Edward's feelings towards his brother. One thing that does seem to be clear is that when Edward became king he didn't do anything to promote the memory of his brother. He didn't um, nurture the small martyr cult that seems to have been growing around his brother's grave at Ely, for example, which would be an obvious way to honour his brother's memory. Uh, Indeed, we know that Edward's father, Ethelred, honoured the memory of his murdered half-brother, Edward the Martyr, by fostering his cult. So Edward had various ways to honour his brother's memory, but, but he didn't. And it's entirely possible that Edward and his brother didn't get along, that in 1036 they were rivals for the throne. It seems that there was some rivalry between them, and that Emma may have been triangulating to a certain extent, trying to play the two off against each other. So I think the premise that we have to start from a position where Edward is secretly very angry and upset with Godwin, that premise is not necessarily true. I think we need to consider other other ways of approaching this problem. But uh, a few years down the track, and we're going to have to skip along a bit to to get to the end of the story in in time, Um, uh, Godwin and uh, Edward and, and the Godwin family they do have a, a falling out uh, in in the in the sort of the, I guess it is the the crux of his reign the pivotal uh, year which is uh, 1051 1052 so just quickly drop us into that what's what's happening there well there's a whole combination of factors uh, at play in 1051 um, first of all Godwin isn't getting his way as much as he used to because he, he tries to push his appointments into into political positions he tries to win arguments in the Witan he hasn't been doing very well um, there's a new faction at court, a faction led by Norman and French favourites of, 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 of Edward, who are beginning to challenge Godwin's monopoly of influence. And all of this blows up in 1051 with a big row, which is started by, uh, again, a, a Norman friend of, um, uh, of Edward uh, starting a fight in, in Godwin's earldom. So uh, my, my, my line is that the, the row of 1051-1052 can be explained entirely in terms of the, uh, the kind of build-up of tension uh, and need, have any, need, need not have anything to do with uh, any sort of lasting uh, enmity between Edward and Godwin over Alfred's death. OK, but the upshot of that clash is that the Godwin family get booted out. They get uh, um, cast out as rebels and exiles. And uh, Godwin goes uh, over to to Bruges, I think. And then his sons, Harold uh, and Leofwyn, go to Ireland. Um, And there's an interesting little um, note in your book, which which I didn't realise. You say that Harold and Leofwyn come back from Ireland at one point, land in Porlock and go slaving in 1051. And they enslave some English people, which is is quite a remarkable statement, I think, for this stage. What so tell us about that? Yes, well, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states that when they raided Porlock, um, they in, in Devon, I think they uh, took um, they took cattle and men. Um, or people, rather. Um, and this is a standard way of referring to uh, the taking of slaves. They had hired mercenary crews um, out of Dublin, and Dublin was the centre of the uh, slave trade in that part of the world at that time, the Irish Sea Zone. Um, 
and it's quite possible that they were taking slaves in order to uh, pay pay for their their mercenaries. Um, so yes, we see them enslaving enslaving some of the the population. Um, but it's, it seems strange for uh, someone who uh, an, an English lord and English rules to be enslaving English people. Is that not was that, was that not a slightly difficult concept? Well, at this stage, Harold is an outlaw. Harold, uh, Harold has been booted out, and um, he, he may have been doing it to humiliate Edward. Um, it, it's an attack upon the king, in a sense, because the king can't protect his subjects uh, from from slave taking. Um, he may have simply been doing it for practical reasons because he needed to pay the the mercenaries. We do know from other sources that raids on the southwest, presumably raids from Hiberno Norse um, Vikings in Ireland, are, are happening. This is one of the reasons that they moved the cathedral uh, to Exeter so that it could be safe within the walls there because the previous site was getting raided so often by pirates as they're described. So slave raids are happening in the southwest and I, who knows whether it was Harold personally or, or his Viking mercenaries who did the actual slave taking but but yes slave taking is, is part of the part of the comeback attack um, in, in 1052. Okay um, so uh, in, in 1052 the, the Godwins do come back uh, they they manage to mass a fleet uh, uh, and they uh, sail up the Thames and they have armed men ready to meet them uh, Edward is in London with the the other earls and his fleet and his army um, this must be close to a to a, a civil war to a to a conflagration there why, why isn't there a big battle the Chronicle says that they decided it would be better not to have civil war because of the destruction and havoc it would wreak. So it, it seems as though they all come to their senses and agree that it's better not to fight and that they should uh, reach a compromise. Okay. And the, and the compromise is that basically the Godwins are uh, brought back into the fold and uh, Edward loses some of these, these continental friends of his, including uh, Robert of Jumiege, his Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes, indeed. I mean, the 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 evil advisor, as he's seen by by Godwin's camp, is is the um, the Frenchman Robert of Jumiège, a Norman, um, who's Archbishop of Canterbury. He has to flee into exile, and there's no question that Edward has to back down to some extent. You know, his his hand is forced here, um, and the Godwins are received back into their lands, as you say. Was there? It sounded from your description of of the negotiations there. It sounded like there was some double dealing and some deft politicking that went on. Do you, is that uh, is that true? Can you read that into the, what might have happened in London in ten fifty two? Well, the intriguing incident, uh, without wanting to get into it in too much detail, is 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 the incident of the hostages, um, because we know that uh, hostages end up in the court of William of Normandy. Um, those hostages are a son and a grandson of Earl Godwin. And the most likely point at which hostages were uh, to be exchanged is in 1052. Indeed, the chronicles tell us that preparations were made for an exchange of hostages. What we don't know is how those hostages came to end up in Normandy. And it's quite possible that Robert of Jumiège, the archbishop, and some of the other Normans, when they fled London at that tense time, managed to break out and take the hostages with them and took the hostages to Normandy uh, at that point, and I think there's some evidence to support that interpretation. Um, and I'm not, I'm not the first historian who suggested that. No, sure. Okay, so we, we need to jump on a bit. Um, so we, we get back to the point where uh, Earl Godwin uh, eventually dies, um, not, not long after, the, um, uh, after everyone is uh, re-accommodated, but uh, the, the, the Godwin clan, uh, his, his uh, children, his, his daughter Edith, um, Edward's wife, and his uh, sons Harold and Tostig, uh, uh, become important players, and 
I, I was I was quite taken with your description of what goes on, uh, the the dynamic of the relationship between the Godwin clan and and Edward over the next few years, because it's kind of the you know it's quite easy to see Edward as being in thrall to those Godwins, but you're seeing as as actually that perhaps the Godwins were were quite enamoured with with Edward and were were keen to to maintain his position. Well, yes, if we, if we look simply at uh, what happens in the next 10 years, um, it seems that the Godwins do everything Edward wants them to do. If, if, <laughs> if he wants them to go off and fight this king or that king, king of Wales, king of Scotland, um, Harold and Tosti uh, are quite, quite happy to do that. Edith seems um, very much you know, um, in Edward's pocket. Uh, the, 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 the biography that she commissions of her husband after his death or around about the time of his death um, is full of praise for him. Um, so although there is a perception later that, uh, that the Godwins might have uh, uh, been pulling the strings behind the scenes, I see very little reason um, to, to think so if we simply look at contemporary accounts. So you're, you, you would give Edward uh, the role more of the player than the pawn in this relationship? There's, there's, there's a bit of both, but my main message is that they, they get on very well. I mean, I think they put their differences behind them. Um, Edward has built a new family for himself. It's something he continues to have to do through his life. He loses his first family, so he builds a new family, first in Normandy with his cousins, and then later on with, with the Goblins. And I, I think they, they're pretty much of, of one mind in, in most of the action they take, um, not necessarily at the very end of the reign, which, which you know, has coloured our perception to some extent, as is 1051, but through those... 15 years in between, um, they, they, they get on pretty well. Okay. We, we need to skip on again. And there's a couple of things that we haven't talked about, which we, we need to, to gloss over very quickly. So one is the, the fact that Edward and Edith have not uh, had, had any children. So that's uh, an important aspect of the story, that there is no uh, clear heir to the throne. And then there's also this chap, William from Normandy, who uh, who appears in the story. Um and we, we actually we do need to do this bit. So, does, does William come? I'm to, not in a hurry. It's fine. <laughs> does William come to to England uh, um, and uh, and meet with Edward uh, whilst the Godwins are in exile? And what what might take place there if uh, if he does? Yeah, so I, I think the evidence for William visiting England at the end of 1051 is is good. It's mentioned in one of our, our chronicles. Um, I think his reason for coming over in 1051 is uh, to provide potential support um, now that the, the power game of the North Sea world has shifted, now that the Gobinsons have fled to Flanders uh, in exile. I think Edward wants other powers to see that he has the support of Normandy if he needs it. Um, we can explain William's visit in those terms. Okay, um, but the, the 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 big question is that the one that looms over the end of of Edward's reign is: Has Edward promised uh, William something? Has he has he promised the throne to William? And that's a question that that does need answering. William is obviously adamant uh, in 1066 that Edward has promised him the throne, but the problem we've always faced as historians is there's no contemporary evidence of this promise uh, before 1066. And you would think that Norman sources would be shouting this from the rooftops. We have contemporary Norman sources which take an interest in the political relations between the English royal family and the Norman dukes uh, in the, from the 1050s, um, and none of them mentioned a promise to, to William. Uh, so I, I remain very sceptical that any such promise would have been made. And I also, going back to the bloodline, think that it, it was almost un- inconceivable for, for Edward 
to, to promise away the throne to someone who was not of the blood. The, blood. the bloodline is fundamental to his own claim to this throne. It's fundamental to him coming back after 24 years uh, to, to, to reclaim it. And so it doesn't sit very well with his own his own theory of kingship, if you like, that he should go offering it to people who who aren't of that of that noble status. Okay, so that but that was that was you know the the foundational myth of why William uh, uh, had a right to to take the throne to to come over with his conquest in 1066, and of course William uh, didn't take the throne from Edward; he took the throne from Harold Harold Godwinson, um, and uh, Harold. Uh, what okay? What how how come Harold ends up being the king uh, rather than anyone else when Edward dies in ten sixty six? So here's here's what we know. Um, Harold tells people that Edward has promised him the uh, throne on his deathbed. That you know when Edward lay dying, he he promised it to Harold, and and nobody wants to argue with Harold. At least nobody in England wants to pick a fight with Harold on this issue. People abroad want to pick a fight with him, obviously. Um, but all we have is Harold's word. Uh, that Edward promised him the throne on his deathbed. Um, and again, I mean, I'm coming back to films here, but this is what happens in Gladiator when, when Joaquin Phoenix claims that Marcus Aurelius has, has made him his heir and successor. And we all know that he made Maximus Decimus Meridius, the uh, the general, his successor. Um, we only have Harold's word for it that Edward promised him the throne on his deathbed. Okay. So, um, so it is a slightly complicated story at the end of his reign. And obviously things go... Um, go somewhat awry for a man of peace uh, uh, or a man of you know a man who who describes himself as a man of peace presumably he wouldn't have wanted uh, his kingdom to to be engulfed in in war and conquest in the uh, in the year immediately after his death what did Edward want to happen after he died well Edward wanted the throne to pass to his adopted son Edgar Etheling so you're going to have to tell us who Edgar Etheling is. So you remember Edmund Ironside, Edward's half-brother, who had died in 1016. He had had a son, uh, also confusingly called Edward, who had gone into exile in Hungary. Um, and Edward, uh, the exile, uh, if you like to follow the idea that we're talking about bloodline succession, was the equivalent to the next in, in line for the throne, um, if Edward the confessor had no children so when it became clear that edward and edith would have no children they sent a mission to hungary to bring back edward the exile and after some toing and froing edward the exile did return to england in 1057 he'd been absent in exile 40 years he probably spoke little or no english uh, but they brought him back in 1057 he died almost immediately but his son edgar uh, uh, survived him and there are some good indications that Edward um, regarded Edgar, his great nephew, as his heir and adopted him as his son. Okay, but that didn't come to pass, and Harold took the throne. And from that, you know, we know what happened. The Bayer Tapestry lays it out for us that uh, Harold and William contest the throne, and uh, and William is successful. Um, and Edgar, he doesn't disappear into uh, into uh, into nothingness. He actually has quite an interesting life after that. But we can't go into that right now um but what i think we should sort of finish by just trying to assess um edward's edward's reign and uh, and and his legacy I and mean, he gets called the confessor um down the track what does that actually mean what does it mean to be called the confessor that what's the significance of that 
It's a rank that's accorded one of three different types of saints recognised by the, uh, the Catholic Church. You've got martyrs who die for the faith, confessors who don't die for the faith, but who demonstrate their faith by their holy life, and virgins who, of course, abstain from um, sexual relations. So it signifies that he was a particular type of saint, a, a saint who demonstrated his virtue by his life. Okay, so he's gifted that um, that uh, uh, posthumously, um, and and that's how we refer to him now. But as a historian, having studied him and, and written the biography of him, what did you think? That's a, an accurate. Was he a saintly, godly sort of peaceful man, uh, or was he much more of a, uh, as a, as I said earlier, a, a political player and someone uh, someone out to to maintain his uh, his kingdom and and, and live like a uh, an eleventh century king might live. Well, sanctity is a model of perfection, and I don't think for a start any any human being, being can attain that model. I especially don't think that an 11th century king could be a saint. Contemporaries knew him as Edward the Good. There are some indications that he was seen as a good king, a king who promoted peace, who promoted just laws, who was pious in a conventional way by giving to the church. I think all of those uh, judgments are fair. But he was also an astute political operator. Um and that was recognised at the time too. He knew well how to play his opponents and, and divide them and put them onto the back foot. Uh, so he was not without worldly cunning. But by and large, he wasn't seen as someone who was guileful or manipulative or who had hidden agendas. I, I think his contemporaries also saw him as a fairly straightforward and plain dealing man. And, I mean, he did survive on the throne uh, and faced a lot of challenges from a lot of a lot of people. Um, we haven't talked about his relationship with Wales and Scotland at all but you know there were, there were a lot of people who were who were um, uh, not out to get him so much but maybe you know causing challenges for his reign but he survived for a, a good long time so would you say that his reign was a success? I think his reign was a success I mean I think it's it's quite an intelligent reign um, it's partly his own intelligence but it's also partly the intelligence of the political community that knows when to draw a line among their in, in, draw a line under their infighting and knows when not to push things too far they, they do avoid civil war as I mentioned uh, it's a success um, insofar as Edward is able to subdue um, Wales and Scotland, um, who are sort of becoming very troublesome for, for England at this period, um, to see it from an English perspective, of course. Um, and by and large, it's a peaceful reign, although there were attacks. And if you lived in the marches, you know, the Welsh marches or the Scottish marches, uh, you, you might not have considered it such a peaceful reign. But by and large, it's a peaceful reign and a very prosperous reign. We have more single coin finds found by metal detectorists from Edward's reign than for any other reign uh, of the Anglo-Saxon age, suggesting there's a lot of coin in circulation um, and there's a lot of wealth generally. Uh, and, and these sorts of uh, dimensions of Edward's reign are picked up by contemporary writers. Okay, well, I think that um, that wraps it up very nicely. So um, thank you very much, Professor Tom Lysons uh, from the University of Anglia, East Anglia, for that, uh, that fascinating uh, guided tour to the reign of, of, of Edward the Confessor. And the book, as I said, is uh, published in August by Yale University Press. Thank you, David. That was Tom Lysons. As we mentioned earlier, Tom has written the cover feature for the September issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes articles on Hiroshima, medieval manuscripts, the history of Freemasonry and much more. Meanwhile, Tom's book, Edward the Confessor, Last of the Royal Blood, was published recently by Yale University Press. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. 
We'll be back on Friday when Alan Mikhail will be speaking to us about a remarkable Ottoman sultan. Mm-hmm.